Chapter Fifty Nine of April's Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. April's Lady by Margaret Wolfe Hungerford. Chapter Fifty Nine lips are so like flowers i might snatch at those redder than the rose leaves sweeter than the rose love is a great master i am reading says she can't you see that read to me then says tommy scrambling up on the bench beside her and snuggling himself under her arm i love to hear people well, not this, at all events, says Miss Kavanagh, placing the dainty copy of the Muses of Mayfair she has been reading on the rustic table in front of her. Why not that one? What is it? asks Tommy, staring at the book. Nothing you would like. Horrid stuff. Only poetry. What's poetry? Oh, nonsense, Tommy. You know very well what poetry is. Your hymns are poetry. This, she considers, will put an end to all desire for the book in question. It is a clever and skillful move, but it fails signally. There is silence for a moment while Tommy cognates, and then, Are those hymns? demands he, pointing at the discarded volume. No, not exactly. This is scarcely disingenuous, and Miss Kavanagh has the grace to blush a little. She is the further discomposed in that she becomes aware presently that Tommy sees through her perfectly. Well, what are they? asks he. Oh, er, well, just poetry, you know. I don't, says Tommy flatly, who is nothing if not painfully truthful. Let me hear them he pauses here and regards her with searching eye they with careful forethought aren't lessons are they no they are not lessons says his aunt laughing but you wouldn't like them for all that if you are a thirst for literature get me one of your own books and i will read jack the giant killer to you i am sick of them says tommy most ungratefully that tremendous hero having filled up many an idle hour of his during his short lifetime. No, nestling close to her, go on with your poetry one. You would hate it. It's worse than Jack, says she. Let me hear it, says Tommy persistently. Well, says Miss Kavanagh with a sigh, if you will have it, at least don't interrupt. She has tried very hard to get rid of him, but having failed in so signal a fashion, she gives herself up with an admirable resignation to the inevitable. What would I do that for? asked Tommy rather indignantly. I don't know, I'm sure, but I thought I'd warn you, says she, wisely precautious. Now sit down there, pointing to the seat beside her, and when you feel you've had enough of it, say so at once. 
that would be interrupting says tommy the conscientious well i give you leave to interrupt so far says joyce glad to leave him a loophole that may ensure his departure before felix comes but no further mind that oh i'm minding says tommy impatiently go on why don't you begin miss cavanagh taking up her book once more opens it at random all its contents are sweetmeats of the prettiest so she is not driven to a choice she commences to read in a firm soft voice the wind and the beam love the rose and the roses love one for who reeks the what's that says tommy what's what you aren't reading it right are you i certainly am why i don't believe a beam of wood could love anything says tommy it's too heavy it doesn't mean a beam of wood doesn't it staring up in her face what it means then the beam that is in thine own eye he is now examining her own eye with great interest as usual tommy is strong in bible lore i have no beams in my eye i hope says joyce laughing and at all events it doesn't mean that either the poet who wrote this means a sunbeam. Well, why couldn't he say so? says Tommy guffly. I really think you had better bring me one of your own books, said Joyce. I told you this would. No, obstinately. I like this. It sounds so nice and smoothly. Go on, says Tommy, giving her a nudge. Joyce with a sigh reopens the volume and gives herself up for lost to argue with tommy has always been known to fatigue and nothing else one never gains anything by it well do be quiet now and listen says she protesting faintly i'm listening like anything says tommy and indeed now at last it seems if he were so silent does he grow as his aunt reads on you might have heard a mouse squeak but for the low soft tones of joyce no smallest sound break the sweet silence of the day miss cavanagh is beginning to feel distinctly flattered if one can captivate the flitting fancies of a child by one's eloquent rendering of a charming verse what may one not aspire to there must be something in her style if it can reduce a boy of seven to such a state of ecstatic attention considering the subject is hardly such one as would suit his tender years but tommy was always thoughtful beyond his age a clear clever little fellow so appreciative far far beyond the average he the mild sweetness of the spring evening and her own thoughts are broken in upon this instant by the dear clever little fellow he has just got your waist now says he with an air of wild if subdued excitement he who what shrieks joyce springing to her feet a long acquaintance with tommy has taught her to dread the worst oh there of course you've knocked him down and i did want to see how high he would go 
I was tickling his tail to make him hurry up, says Tommy, in an aggrieved tone. I can't see him anywhere now, peering about on the ground at her feet. Oh, what is it, Tommy? Do speak, cries Joyce, in a frenzy of fear and disgust. "'Twas an earwig," says Tommy, lifting a seraphic face to hers. "'And such a big one. He was racing up your dress most beautifully, and now you've upset him. Poor thing. I don't believe he'll ever find his way back to you again.' "'I shall hope not, indeed,' says Miss Cavanaugh hastily. "'He began at the very end of your frock.' goes on Tommy, still searching diligently on the ground, as if to find the earwig with a view to restoring it to its lost hunting ground. And it wriggled up so nicely. I don't know where he is now, sorrowfully, unless, with a sudden brightening of his expressive face, he is up your petticoats. Tommy, what a horrid bad boy you are! cries poor Joyce wildly. She gives a frantic shake to the petticoats in question. Find him at once, sir. He must be somewhere down there. I shan't have an instant's peace until I know where he is. I cannot see him anywhere, says Tommy. Maybe you'll feel him presently, and then we'll know. He isn't on your leg now, is he? Oh, don't, cries Joyce, who looks as if she is going to cry. She gives herself another vigorous shake and stands away from the spot where Tommy evidently thinks the nauseous beast in question may be, with her petticoats held carefully up in both hands. Oh, Tommy, darling, do find him. He can't be up my petticoats, can he? He can. There's nothing they can't do, says Tommy, who is plainly reveling in the storm he has raised. Her open fright is beer and skittles to him. Why did you stir? He was as good as gold until then, and there wasn't anything to be afraid of. I was watching him. When he got to your ear, I'd have told you. I wouldn't like him to make you deaf but I wanted to see if you would go to your ear. But you spoiled my fun, and now where is he? asked Tommy with an awful suggestion in his tone. On the grass, perhaps, says Joyce, miserably, looking round her everywhere, even on her shoulder. I don't feel him anywhere. Sometimes they stay quite a long time, and then they crawl says Tommy, the most horrible anticipation in his tone. Really, Tommy, cries his aunt indignantly, I do think you are the most abominable boy I ever met in my life. There, go away. I certainly shan't read another line to you, either now or ever. What is the matter? asks a voice at this moment that sounds close to her elbow. She turns round with a start. It is you, Felix, says she, coloring warmly. Oh, oh, it's nothing, only Tommy, and he said I had an earwig on me, and I was just a little unnerved, you know. And no wonder, says her lover, with delightful sympathy. I can't bear that sort of wild animal myself. 
Tommy, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. When you saw him, why didn't you rise up and slay the destroyer of your aunt's peace? There, run away into the hall. You will find on one of the tables a box of chocolate. I told Mabel it was there. Perhaps she, like an arrow from the bow, Tommy departs. He has evidently his doubts of Mabel, says Joyce, laughing rather nervously. She is still a little shy with Phoenix. He doesn't trust her. No, he has seated himself and now draws her down beside him. You were reading, he says. Yes. To Tommy? Yes. Laughing more naturally this time. Tommy is a more learned person than one would have supposed. Is this the sort of thing he likes? Pointing to Nydia's exquisite song. I'm afraid not, though he would insist upon me reading it. The earwig was evidently far more engrossing as a subject than either the wind or the rose. And yet, he has his arm around her now, and is reading the poem over her shoulder. You are my rose, says he softly, and you, do you love but one? She makes a little mute gesture that might signify anything or nothing to the uninitiated, but to him his instinct with a most happy meaning. Am I the one, darling? She makes the same little silent movement again, but this time she adds to it by casting a swift glance upward at him from under her lowered lids. Make me sure of it, entreated he almost in a whisper. He leans over her, lower, lower still, with a little tremendous laugh, dangerously akin to tears. She raises her soft palm to his cheek and tries to press him from her, but he holds her fast. Make me sure, he says again. There is a last faint hesitation on her part, and then their lips meet. I have doubted always, always a little, ever since that night down by the river, says he. But now, oh no, you must not doubt me again, says she with tears in her eyes. End of chapter 59. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. End of April's Lady, a novel by Mrs. Hungerford.